I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm your host, Adam Schatz. Today we have a very special guest, Paul Gilroy, one of our foremost thinkers on questions of race, nation, and belonging in the modern world. Gilroy is the founding director of the Sarah Parker Redmond Center for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. A protege of the late Stuart Hall, Gilroy is probably best known as the author of The Black Atlantic, published in 1993 a book that not only coined a new term but helped revolutionize the study of the cultures of the Black diaspora. In all of his work, he has celebrated the creativity and inventiveness of the writers, artists, and musicians of the Black Atlantic, while also warning against what he has called the lure of ethnic absolutism, cultural nationalism, and other forms of essentialist thinking. Last year, Gilroy received the Holberg Prize awarded to a person who has made outstanding contributions to research in the arts, humanities, social science, law, or theology. After you've listened to this podcast, I urge you to go online and read, or better yet, listen to his Holberg lecture, Never Again, Refusing Race and Salvaging the Human, a powerful reflection on the crisis of our contemporary politics and imagination. Gilroy's writing on race and racism is distinguished not only by the way it cuts across sociology, history, aesthetics, and philosophy, but by its worldliness, its expansive frame of intellectual reference, and its profoundly ethical underpinnings. Ever since the anti-racist protests in the States spread to Europe and the UK, I've been eager to hear Paul's thoughts about the growing global insurrection against white supremacy and the residues of colonialism, and about the state of contemporary anti-racist discourse. So it's a pleasure and an honor to have him as our guest. Paul, welcome to the LRB podcast. Thank you, Adam. Paul, it's, it's well known that you're a member of this remarkable generation of thinkers and artists in Britain who look to Stuart Hall as a teacher and mentor, thinking of people like Hazel Carby, could be an immerser, John Acomfra. But you know, it's not as if your intellectual life began with Stuart Hall, as influential as he was. Your your mother, Beryl, was an ethno-psychiatrist, or psychologist, rather, a teacher and novelist born in Guyana. Your father, a scientist and conscientious objector in, war, in World War II. Uh, you were born a decade after the war's end, and, and, and in your book, Against Race, you talk about growing up in East London, where some of your neighbors were Holocaust survivors, um, and about the impact that Primo Levi and Jean Améry had on your on your thinking. 
So one of the aspects of your writing that's always struck me is its sensitivity to the psychological dimensions of politics and its sense of human vulnerability in the face of violence. I'm wondering if we can trace these concerns and this awareness to this childhood that you had. Hmm. Interesting place to begin. I mean, yes, I grew up in North London and London was in the 1950s and early 60s uh, not so different in its heterocultural and creole patterning to the London we know today. Among our neighbours were certainly Holocaust survivors. I can remember sitting in the garden with my mother and my baby sister and asking Mrs. Neckar about the um, tattoo on her arm because as a child I'd never seen that and I had no idea what it might mean. I don't recall what she said to me about it, although I do recall the taste of her poppy seed cake, which has always been something that has travelled with me in the intervening decades. But around us were many, many people coming from lots of different parts of the empire, what had been the empire, different parts of Europe. We had Italians who'd come from the European Voluntary Workers Scheme. We had fugitive Jews from the camps, from the lagers. We had enormous numbers uh, of South African refugees who were my peers and friends, active politically, often from these very damaged families that were part of the ANC project. Uh, we had Cypriots, we had Sikhs, we had Caribbean folks, we had Indians, we had, and, and the flats where we lived were full. There's obviously a, a turnover, you know, among the other tenants. Uh, so I, I was exposed to all manner of, of things. And I, I don't know that the, the question of violence, where it enters, I think is, is, is not there exactly because I, you know, it enters for me in, in, in knowing that there were certain places, even as a young child, that I couldn't walk, even in North London. Um, the teddy boys were there. My mother had run from them as a young woman herself, ran for her life. And then, of course, the teddy boys were soon replaced by the skinheads who represented another kind of immediate danger in our uh, everyday moving around. I mean, they were, in a sense, easier to see coming. There is a kind of violence there also, just among a good percentage of the regular English people who are around us. Um, there's a resentment, there's a hatred, and it would bubble up periodically in school or in transit. So these hazards were just routine features of our everyday life, even at that point, even before Enoch Powell's intervention, which formalised the backdrop of race war as the, the ground against which we had to make a life. And those hazards were not agonised over. They were, I guess, considered like the weather or something like that. You, you know, you accept them as conditions of your existence and you you choose to move forward and move around and move through those hazards alert as you can be and I mean I, th I was still in primary school when I was attacked in the street by people and that I think that was part of that awakening for me because although as a young quite a young child I, I moved around the city quite a lot on my own we did that in those days and and I can remember very clearly having thoughts about why I had been attacked, what it meant, 
what the words they had said to me when they assaulted me might mean and what and what this might reveal about the larger processes of racial division and racial conflict that were no longer hidden they were absolutely visible you could touch them yeah, your your mother uh, who published a, a novel uh, in 1976 called the black teacher was herself involved in anti-racist organizations and black women's groups am, am i right well she was i mean we got to periodize that carefully i think it wasn't a novel a black teacher it was a memoir a life writing exercise and um yeah, I mean, she had been involved with the Race Relations Board. So that, you know, was, um, for those who are unfamiliar with that moment, you know, the leaders of the Labour Party in the era of Roy Jenkins and Harold Wilson. Uh, Jenkins was determined that uh, our country wasn't going to go down the road of an American future. So to avoid the prospect of fire and race war, he dispatched his civil servants to the United States on what was then called a fact-finding mission. Uh, I like that phrase. It's kind of quaint. So the fact-finding mission went off to look at America on fire and came back with the news that if you didn't bring in anti-discrimination legislation, then an American situation was waiting for you. And that anti-discrimination legislation required the formation of panels of people who would judge particular complaints that were made, a kind of paralegal process. And my my mum was certainly involved in that because I can remember, again, a little bit later, you know, when the hate mail began to turn up at the house, you know, (laughs) being as a child a little bit puzzled at some of the things that were being sent through the post and uh, being actually not not very satisfied with the kinds of explanations that I was getting about why this was going on and why and why we had to be a bit careful or a bit frightened in case other things came through the door that we weren't looking out for. So, yeah, I mean, those things were going on and um, those things were around, around us. And I think, you know, one layer of my, my, my parents' sort of um, life was, was among people who had, you know, dissenting opinions of one kind or another. So I was quite, I was quite used to that. And, and you clearly had a, a very strong sense of, of internationalism uh, growing up in a community composed of so many different ethnic groups and, and refugees and political exiles and so on. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder, you know, in your, in your formative years in the 70s and 80s, there were very significant anti-racist movements in the UK and in, in activist circles uh, at the time. Black was a, a political category, not a, a racial one, and it embraced not just people of Afro-Caribbean descent, but also South Asians. And I mean, I remember reading Mona Hatoum, an artist of Lebanese-Palestinian mm-hmm. descent, calling herself black. Uh, now, Stuart Hall defended the term on anti-essentialist and political grounds, but he also said that one unfortunate effect was that it obscured the particular experiences of Asians in Britain. And, and now we have this strange term, B-A-M-E, which I, I gather you're not supposed to call BAME, um, to refer to black and ethnic minorities. Uh, is this an improvement or is this a regression? What's, what's your feeling about this? Well, to me, the word BAME just highlights the absurdity involved in the politics of race. So, I mean, I kind of, I, I, don't, I wouldn't use it in polite company, but I think it does I, I, I like the absurdity of racial hierarchy, the absurdity of racial differentiation. I want to keep in touch with that, not not because it's a source of humour alone. You know, people are victimised and the violence is, 
is palpable and recurrent and communicates powerful and important things about the nature of these relationships. But the, but the absurdity is, is fundamental, I think, to the kinds of political responses that, that we require. I, I mean, I, I don't, there's not much I, I can say about, about Stuart, but let me just correct you on one, one point here. I mean, yes, everything you said is right, but I remember one of the very first times I heard Stuart speak in the uh, late 1970s, uh, and I remember the debate that followed his intervention uh, in that sort of, you know, academic activist kind of grey zone. And and I can remember being really shocked and deeply disagreeing with him about the idea that there was a there was a moment in the life of movements as they move where people had to kind of pretend to be more more un- unanimous than they than they really were. That identity, if you like, would be considered through a kind of um, an idea of hypersimilarity in certain critical moments. And that really, that really bothered me. I guess, you know, it's a political point, really, and we associate it nowadays with the work of people like Gayatri Spivak, who spoke of strategic essentialism. I guess I always kind of recoiled from that idea because it creates a kind of hierarchy of credibility that you allow people into the illusions of this racial unanimism that you yourself don't really suffer from you know you're you're the one who's tied to the mask who can hear that call uh, while the others have their ears stopped up with wax so I, I i feel very uncomfortable with the idea that you you kind of feed that possibility whilst yourself luxuriating in the possibility that you know better really you don't really buy in and that's I think the reason that troubled me then, and the reason it still troubles me in some of its more recent iterations, that that particular notion, is because that's a, a problem I associate with some political movements that I really recoil from, you know. And if one looks at the history of the 20th century and thinks about the growth of fascism in its interwar formations, you know that we characteristically encounter patterns where that dupes involved are offered, I don't know, some sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that, uh, or rather, let me put it a different way, the dupes are offered a a theory which focuses on anti-black racism, but once you're really initiated into the higher layers of this, this movement as it involves, you you know, you get the real deal, which is that it's, it's Jews are responsible for everything. So those kinds of hierarchies in the flow of information, all of those views, those perspectives, which suggest that we are much more able to manipulate identities and orchestrate identities on behalf of others, I feel kind of uncomfortable with that idea because once once some of these images some of these rhetorics some of these political ideas are out of the box they are loose in the world and it's delusional to imagine that you can orchestrate them even for the good black cultural studies in britain in the 80s and 90s uh, had quite a profound effect overseas above all uh, in the united states but it was if i'm not mistaken quite a challenge to pursue that work at the time, even though it grew out of the Birmingham School and, and Raymond Williams's work and so on, I, I remember reading you saying somewhere that you were often told at that time to, to go back home as if you had another home than, than Britain. Can you, can you talk about a little bit about what it was like to pursue that kind of work in Britain at the time that sort of placed questions of race and racism at the center of an understanding of the British experience? Mm. 
I mean, that's a wonderful question. I am of the generation who drifted into higher education, looking for information, wanting to follow my curiosity into an understanding of the racial ordering of the world. I mean, of course, I had, you know, I was interested in other things, but I felt under an incredible pressure to do that and to seek that information. And the time, you know, the only place that you could do that really in universities was by studying American history and American culture and American literature. So that's what I, I went to do. And I, and I was very fortunate, actually, in the teachers I found and in the moment, because, you know, I can remember the day when I was um, talking to my tutor and my tutor said to me, oh, well, yeah, you're interested in that stuff. Well, you know, I just supervised Ben Sudaram's PhD. It's over there in the library. You know, maybe you should go and take a look at it or whatever. And, I, and you know, this is a moment really, I guess, when the incendiary possibilities that have been unlocked by Baraka's reading of African-American music and African-American culture and society are absolutely effervescent and you're talking about blue you're talking about blues people and black music and black music in particular yes and and through all that i guess i found ellison and other things that were connected i was guided by my teachers in into that so so i arrived at um and this is going to sound odd i arrived at the point of entry into thinking about black life in britain via a kind of american intellectual detour now, that's not the same as, as me as a child being attacked in the street and wondering why I was being attacked or being frightened moving around the city. There, there's another layer of it there. And, and that's asking questions about why this is happening uh, and how to keep safe as I move through it. But in terms of the, the intellectual apparatus that I required, you know, it wasn't something that emerged from the kind of Caribbean side of my family or from, I mean, that happened later, but it didn't happen straight away. So I wasn't at that stage reading James or thinking about, you know, carrying poetry or trying to understand what Wilson Harris was doing or any of those things. I was, I was looking at the world through a set of lenses that were to do with the development of black studies transnationally, but which were fundamentally rooted in African-American life history and experience. And, and, you know, my guide, I mean, Du Bois is still my guide, but I can remember sitting down reading Souls of Black Folks when I was still at school and think of reading Martin Luther King or thinking about these things as part of what drove me into university as an American studies undergraduate, looking for the truths of black life. And so after a while, uh, you know, writing my uh, work at university, you begin to say, because things have moved on politically and culturally, I have to use, I have to find a way to adapt this toolkit to my own circumstances. I'm not American. I've been to America. I've seen a little bit what that's like, you know, and it is incredibly inspiring and compelling, but I don't, didn't see my future in the United States. I saw it here 
And so I wanted to create a toolkit. I wanted to find, you know, the weapons of criticism, to borrow a phrase, that would unlock my own um, uh, predicament historically. And also to find some more local ancestors, as it were. Well, and to find some local ancestors. And and for me, cultural studies was a, a way of doing that. And it was tremendously exciting. You know, I'd read The Making of English Working Class when I was still at school. So I had some idea of, of that project. Well, I didn't really understand that the Communist Party historians project. All of that came to me through my time in Birmingham, and that was very welcome to me. But trying to develop that in the Birmingham context was weird because people didn't, if they had read Leroy Jones' Baraka, they didn't take it seriously as a sort of whole critical paradigm for thinking about black life and culture and aesthetics. If If they'd read Ellison, they didn't see Ellison in that way. If they'd read Wright, you know, like Stuart loathed Wright, dismissed Wright as a kind of, you know, didactic, you know, somebody who was writing the wrong kind of literature, you know, and the other side of Wright was unknown, I guess we could say. Um, there was, I guess, some familiar with, some familiarity with C.L.R. James as a, as a figure in, in the history of communism, someone who'd been and talked to Trotsky and so on, and who was at that stage, after all, living in London at the end of his life. So he was around and was associated with other interests and forces on the ground, the race that they collected, et cetera. So he, James was there in the picture. But, but people were terribly unfamiliar, uh, unfamiliar with that archive, and, and I felt there had to be a way of connecting what was most inspiring and useful, drawn from the writings of African-Americans, some of whom we've talked about, but there are others as well who were very important to me, and not being distracted into the kinds of arguments about African-American culture, which are inevitably part of that territory, but borrowing in a selective way to find resources with which to unlock my own situation. And I, I think we, we certainly hear echoes of, for example, Baraka's idea of the changing same in your study, uh, The Black Atlantic. And it, it seems to me that what you've done in, in The Black Atlantic and in other books, uh, such as uh, Between Camps or what was published in the States as Against Race, is to uh, take some of these figures like like Wright, like Ellison, and, and Du Bois, and to deprovincialize our understanding of them. There's been a tendency to, you were talking about some of these people in Britain who dismissed Richard Wright, or who dismissed Wright's work published in, in Paris uh, once he left the States, didn't see them as thinkers about the world. And you've, you've taken them and said, these people were not just writing about quote-unquote, the Black experience or the Black American experience. They were writing about the world, a world that had been profoundly shaped by slavery and its aftermaths. Yeah, that's right. And I think I was encouraged to do that by someone else that I met, um, African-American scholar Cedric Robinson, who was um, over in England, I guess it must have been sort of 8081, that year, 8081, finishing this book, Black Marxism. He was writing at that time at a village called Radwinter up there in uh, on the edge of Cambridgeshire and close to actually where Raymond Williams was living, funnily enough, although I don't know if they ever encountered one another at the shops or something. Anyway, Cedric was around and I found Cedric was an incredible uh, custodian of the history of those thinkers who had, from a variety of different directions, come into African-American life and also found Marxism in that context and had moved through it 
and and then left, often with a, a powerful exit velocity, like right, in fact. I mean, what does it right says? Um, Marxism is but a transitory makeshift pending a more accurate diagnosis and containing within it a definition of, of humanity only by default. So Marxism becomes this kind of, um, uh, yeah, a transitory makeshift, a signpost on the road to a richer conversation about what we can do with this world and, and how we can transform ourselves and our hopes through a different kind of discussion about what it is to be be a human being in the 20th century. For you, Marxism was not really even much of a transitory makeshift, although you, of course, drew upon uh, Marxist uh, ideas and traditions. Um, because I think, you know, you said in an interview that um, that what made you recoil from Marxism was its productivism, and that for a certain, for the black intellectual tradition, work has been servitude, right? It, it hasn't been this site of liberation. Mm. No, I think that's true. That's one of the things that drew me to Adorno because Adorno's critique of Marx is something that works along similar lines. Although, of course, now we've got, you know, John Bellamy Foster and a whole lot of other voices who look at the history of Marxism from a different different angle that's connected up with kind of ecological and um, uh, and other questions which are... I mean, I, I'm very stimulated by that. I just still don't buy the idea that, that Marxism isn't productivist in its in its constitution, I think that it is. But that's a good argument to keep rolling along. You know, I'm struck by what you were saying about having started out, having launched your inquiry into questions of race and racism by reading the work of uh, Black American writers. Um, and I, I don't think you were alone in that regard um, at all. And it seems to me that, um, well, I'm going to quote something that you said. You, you wrote that um, African-American culture offers the world this conception of freedom, which is more complex, more compelling, more poetic, more important. There's something in that experience which articulates a conception of freedom, which is not Freiheit. It's not Liberté. This is a different freedom. This is not the freedom of the ancient Greeks. This is not the freedom of the Prussians. This is a distinctive conception of freedom, which is one from an experience of suffering, not the redemption of that suffering, but the product of it. And, and as you said, you went on to write about some of the great figures in West Indian thought, uh, C.L.R. James in particular, about Bob Marley. But you were always writing in the shadow of Black American culture. And I wonder, is this because of this extraordinary imaginative and political contribution? Um, or is it also, to some extent, because of the fact of American power? Um, why has Black American culture so dominated discussions of Black diaspora culture? Mm. Well, I mean, Du Bois would have said, and I follow him, that it's exactly this conception of freedom that has been so compelling and so useful. Even, I think, James, at a certain point in Notes on Dialectics, you know, would have also, with this, you know, Hegel in his pocket, had a view of how human conceptions of human freedom might be thought of in some sort of teleological sweep, you know. So obviously it's not the last word on human freedom, but it is for, for, for much of the 20th century something which, you know, has the wind of, of history behind it. Does that reflect American uh, other aspects of American power in the world? Well of, well, of course it does, you know. I mean, actually, to, to really unlock that, one would have to start to look at the history of the, mu of the music, which has been bequeathed by African-Americans to the rest of the planet. I mean, I know that there are other 
parts and other components of that which relate to a larger understanding of Black Atlantic life and history. But let's think about what the life of that music has been and how it has been transmitted. And, you know, obviously I used the story of the Jubilee Singers in Black Atlantic because it seemed to me to represent a different starting point for that conversation than the, than the starting points which had become habitual or conventional in the kind of larger narrative of African-American music on its travels across the world. I want to talk to you about the electrifying effect that the protests in the States have had in the UK, especially among Black Britons. George Floyd uh, was not the first Black person in the States to be murdered by the police. Yet this killing, more than any other, generated not just a powerful protest wave in the States, but a similar wave overseas. Statues taken down, calls made to decolonize the university and other public spaces. Um, Why do you think this killing in particular was so galvanizing in the UK? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why this killing, uh, the murder of of George Floyd was so potent transnationally, why it had such a long reach, such a a powerful resonance. It may be that I don't know because I haven't watched that video. I try to protect myself from things like that. And I can't, I don't feel that there's an ethical obligation to immerse myself in that suffering. It's something I recoil from and I want to protect that part of myself, which is sensitive about those exposures and those contacts. So I think perhaps part of it must be to do with that video and the, and the particular nature of the, the violence in that example. It has to be that because we've, we've heard, I can't breathe before. We've had videos of murder. We've had people being shot, et cetera, et cetera. So that must be part of it, but I can't, I can't offer a reading of it that would help that. I mean, the other thing is when we, when we think about the multinational, transnational, the global event that grows from the seed of uh, George Floyd's murder, I know that the new technologies that are at our disposal, the way that things can be passed on and passed around, multiplied through an electronic network of a very a plastic, very mutable kind. This is also a big, a bigger part of it. And it may well be that the, there's a technological story to be told about the viral nature of those events on their travels, you know, and maybe there's, there's just a kind of quantity aspect too, that, that, that at a certain point, we reach a certain point after years and years of ever more vivid presentations of this violence, that something snaps, that something breaks. But of course, we can't overlook the role of the COVID crisis in this. And I would say that the COVID pandemic revealing the racialized character of vulnerabilities and risks in a way that we know every other form of chronic disease already does that, but there's something about the intensity of the COVID pandemic revealing that to everybody, which means that there's a kind of connotative resonance. A resonance is established between the the deliberate and calculated or indifferent killing of this man and the forms of vulnerability which have been underscored through the pandemic and official failure of governments to be able to not just manage it, but to see the racial, racialized dimensions of that risk as something that is sufficiently important to engage governmentally. You're listening to the LRB podcast. If you want to subscribe to the LRB, you can do that from just one pound per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me 
forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or just click on the link in the description below this episode. In your 2019 Holberg lecture, uh, which seems to me even more prescient now in 2020 than it was when it was published last year, you write of, of a kind of civilizational shipwreck and of what you call disaster ethics. And uh, in a sense, the, the COVID crisis was this, this shipwreck that revealed this anatomy of racial um, and class injustice that you just described. Yeah, I mean, I was very, I've been influenced for a long time as a teacher by Hans Blumenberg's exercises in metaphorology. And Blumenberg has a story about the shipwreck as a metaphor in the history of, of thought uh, one that he takes back to the ancients and sees as part of the beginnings of Theoria at all. And that the person who's witnessing this tragedy from the land develops a certain set of, or comes to understand the, the, the obligations that fall to them by virtue of their witnessing of this horror, which is a sublime thing. They can't necessarily intervene at the distance or in the perspective from which they behold these things. And, and, I, and I've, been, I've been working on a book about, um, about humanity, imperiled humanity, for a long time and, and finding that a useful place to enter those arguments and to connect them to other things in the Black Atlantic archive that relate to the history of liquid modernity, fluvial thinking, riparian thinking, pelagic thinking, abyssal thinking, fluministic thinking, to really try and, and, and make the, the meeting place of land and sea into a, a kind of standpoint from which certain creative, imaginative and ethical possibilities begin to force themselves into consciousness. Well, the idea of the sea as a place of horror, especially because of the history of the Middle Passage, but also of freedom, has appeared in your work from early on. I, I remember the, the 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 allusions to to Turner's paint, 1840 painting in in the Black Atlantic. It was interesting that painting because the people who who were the guardians in British culture of the legacy of Turner. They didn't want that painting. They weren't terribly interested in that painting. So I think of all the things that I've done by mistake in my uh, career as a writer, you know, one of, I'm very proud, actually, of restoring the slave ship to people's imaginative purview. And it was wonderful, actually. We had a, a day some years ago at the, um, the Claw Centre, the Turner Centre behind Tate Britain there, and Gordon Parks came to speak because Gordon Parks in his later years was somebody who became progressively more obsessed with Turner. I don't know. So Gordon was there and uh, art historian from Boston, Eric Rosenberg, was there. We had a wonderful, rich day of thinking about how Turner might figure in this story. Of course, the history of that painting is interesting because of the slave ship painting because it was exhibited in London 1840, the time of the anti-slavery convention. And, and there's a certain amount of contemporary critical commentary on it where people don't really know quite what to make of this as an intervention and whether it's appropriate in light of the anti-slavery struggle. And it's an image of slaves being dead and dying, being thrown overboard. 
Yes, it's a it's a horrible one, um, and of course it belonged to Ruskin too for an interesting period of time. So it's it's got a history. In, we were talking earlier on about trying to connect together the worlds of English cultural reflection, criticism, and art with the world of African American critics and voices, and the larger story of the Black Atlantic. For me, that painting, and I remember taking dragging my poor children to go and look at it in the museum in in, in Boston, where it where it was uh, located. Um, when they were very young, I, I just remember thinking, well, of course, this, in, in a way, this is an, an amazingly useful object that conjoins those histories, that enforces their mutual conditioning, that, that nobody can deny what, what's going. Of course, once you delve into the archives of Turner Scholarship, you find that there's an awful lot of denial going on about, about that. I mean, we can also connect this imaginatively to Derek Walcott's poem, The, the Sea is History, yeah, and, yeah. To, and to John Acomfra's work. Yeah, I mean, to go back to Wright for a moment, one of the things I've been working on most recently are the stories that Wright wrote in response to the Mississippi flood. And, and thinking about flooding, really, more than the sea as such, trying to get into stories about where the, the racial nomos of the land breaks down in in conditions of emergency, but also in contact with water, with this kind of liquid force that pushes everything aside. And Wright was very early into that, and I think inspired a number of later writers, Black Power writers like Henry Dumas, for example, who has this unfinished novel, Joan Noah and the Green Stone. So you've got Jonah and Noah, the, the figures of Jonah and Noah, brought together in the, in the context of an exploration of the flood and the aftermath of flooding it's a very, it's a, a very powerful body of work, very stimulating to return to that in the context of discussions about climate change. Now, and Henry Dumas was a, a very gifted black poet, part of the black arts movement, who was killed by a New York City transit cop in 1968 at the age of 33 in a case of supposedly in a case of mistaken identity, never resolved. How did you come to return to his work recently? Well, I've always taught him, but I've always taught, I mean, a lot of his work, the side of his work that is read, there are two things that are read because of his association with Sun Ra. Uh, and in fact, in fact, I think when he was killed, he was on his way home from a rehearsal with Sun Ra. Uh, he was on his journey homeward. So uh, there's a very intimate connection between him and Sun Ra, of course. And, and there is, um, how can I put it? There are ways of looking at his short stories um, and his what would we call it, the more rural writing um, that open into a, a, a discussion of the what, what, what people tend to think of as the magical realist side of Toni Morrison, who was, after all, she was his editor. She was his editor. So, and there's a, and in the same way, I think we've got, you know, Gail Jones on one side and one ear of Morrison, and then we've got Dumas on the other. And they had Jiminy Cricket figures calling into her ears from either side of her head. You know, there is something very, very interesting about putting those two figures into the mix. Now, Duma is the writer par excellence of those stories about black rural life, which confuse the politics of time. And he's remembered, if he's remembered at all, really as an Afrofuturist writer. So, you know, there are these stories where the two cracker policemen who want to go and murder this guy who's got a bit uppity, 
you know, um, get him in the police car. He's not frightened and they don't really understand why. But as the kind of diegesis of this little story unfolds, you know, it turns out there's a spaceship around the corner and actually the people in the spaceship are on his team, you know. So so there are those aspects of Duma that people find very interesting and important. And I do too. But I, I, I think for me, the nature of the writing demands of what some would call an eco-critical reading as well as an Afrofuturist one. And I don't see those things as opposed to one another. In The Black Atlantic uh, and in other books, you've, you've used a word that, oddly enough, seems at risk of um, falling out of fashion. And the word I'm speaking of is, is racism. Uh, today, the preferred term for many activists and writers is anti-blackness or white supremacy. How do you understand this discursive shift? Is it comparable to the shift from Negro to Black or in the 1990s from Black to African-American, which, of course, has been reversed since then? But how do you understand it? Well, I mean, there's a generous answer to that and an ungenerous answer. I think the generous answer would say that in the light of the horrors that have unfolded in the last kind of 20 years since the advent of the cell phone made the presence of violent racism in everyday life a routine feature of African-American experience and, and offered it to the world as proof, incontrovertible proof, that people want a vocabulary, a constellation of concepts, which allows them to zoom in on the particular nature of those horrors. And they see in the vocabulary of anti-blackness that opportunity. I, I'm not entirely convinced by that. I associate the the vocabulary of anti-blackness with two writers in particular. One's Lewis Gordon, who's really, um, you know, a phenomenologist, you know, pupil of Maurice Natanson, etc. And the other one, of course, is the great African-American luminary, uh, un, unsung, really, intellectual presence in African-American life, Sinclair Drake. Now, Sinclair Drake, Quaker, Black Quaker, they're always interesting. Someone who did their path-breaking fieldwork on the city of Liverpool. And in in Drake's magisterial two-volume series of writings on the African diaspora of black folks, uh, then and now black folks here and there, he opens up this discussion between the general forms of racism and its specific anti-black forms. And I don't see those conversations as being weakened by being connected to one another. We, we live in a, in a situation where I think the histories of suffering and the ontological responses to them, the need to ontologize in response to suffering is, is really a dominant motif. And that's as true of African-Americans as it is, I think, for some versions of, of Jewish life and thought. You know, one mustn't now, by some lights, compare anti-Semitism to other forms of racism. If we do that, we are in danger of diluting the historical specificity and significance of anti-Semitism. I think the, the, the shift to anti-blackness is rather like that, that if we talk about racism too generally, we, we're in danger of diluting our fundamental reckoning with the historical uniqueness and significance of this outrage. So I see those terms, they're part of the moods of the moment that we're in. Uh, you know, you've described this ontological turn in black studies, and I take that to be an implicit reference to Afro-pessimism as well as, to some extent, to the decolonized movement. And, and, you know, both, it seems to me, depict the world as if once you scratch the surface, it hasn't changed except in appearance. You know, for Afro-pessimism, black people are still slaves, socially dead. They they use the term of, from Orlando Patterson, although Patterson uh, rejects that usage. 
And for the decolonized movement, the ancestors of the colonized are still colonized. Uh, it seems to me both movements, as alive as they are to the enduring power of oppression, uh, have a hard time imagining change or any kind of social horizon or historical dynamism. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to take the two cases separately. I mean, obviously, if you're told in your theory that the only thing you have to do in order to challenge this, well, in fact, that this the order um, that you inhabit as a black person, as a black body, as they would have it, is so uniquely uh, sealed off to the possibility of historical transformation, that leaves you with one mission. And that mission is to be black. You know? And in some ways, that's a very that's a very comforting option because it really does mean you don't actually have to do anything at all, you know? Um, and I think that, that, that's, that's, you know, nourishing maybe to that generation of people who, who see the racial settlement they took for granted as the more privileged daughters and sons of a certain kind of caste within African American life who, who see that settlement being washed away to stick with the earlier metaphor. So, so I think that's, it's very comforting to feel that all you have to do is just be and that that's the limit of your responsibility. Um, and, and it's a very, it's a very, as you know, some of the feminist critics of Afro-pessimism who've published work recently have pointed out, and I'm thinking here, not just of Annie Tariba's wonderful essay, but also of the work that's been published in Dutch by Gloria Wecker in Amsterdam. This is a very, it's a very joyless project. You know, it's a very joyless, masculinist, slightly weird project. I mean, maybe you're American, you, you understand its relationship to the culture of debating more than I do. I wasn't a, a sports debater at school, so I don't really know. I can see the structure of the argument might correspond and, and work very well in the context of a sort of anthropological account of high school debating culture as a competitive sport, you know? That's where it belongs, and that's probably where we could park it. You know, it seems that in, in left liberal culture today, there, there are two choices when it comes to anti-racism. There's an anti-racism that logically dismantles the concept of race, but seems to overlook the persistence of racism on the one hand. And then on the other, you have this anti-racism that shades into a strategic, if not ontological, essentialism. So you have this colorblind voluntarism that pays too little attention to injustice, and then you have this color-conscious nationalism that seems wedded to monolithic thinking about race. Why does it seem so hard to argue, as you have, for an anti-racist critique of raciology, for an appreciation of black culture that avoids a kind of racialist romanticism? Um, I mean, you've described your approach as strategic universalism. And, you know, you've risked a lot, I think, in, in, in making a case for that because it's, it's, it remains quite unfashionable now. Why is that so hard? Why is it so hard? Maybe it's got to do with the retreat of the left and the defeat of the left. I mean, the people that I, I, I know Fanon wasn't a Marxist, right? Obviously. But I mean, he's someone who you can't deny is a, is a, is a humanist voice of some sort. It's not the humanism of the liberals. It's not the humanism of the Cold War. It has a longer lineage. Maybe it connects up to certain motifs in the, in French intellectual life in the 19th century, it has a certain association with motifs drawn from the early Marx. It preserves the concept of alienation although it's not quite the alienation of Marx, it's not quite the alienation of Hegel, it's not quite the reification of the later Marx. There's a bit of Rousseau as well. There's a, there's, there's a bit of Rousseau, there's a, little, there's a little bit of Nietzsche in there, there's a number of other things that we can identify. But it is 
um, a humanistic project. And, and there are some commentators on Fanon. I'm thinking here of the Ghanaian Ato Seki Otu, uh, as, uh, of course, Achille Mbembe and others, mostly Francophone, interestingly, because they go and read the work closely and they understand what Fanon said in a way that some of those, you know, English translations which sought to Americanize the words at a critical point, the life of black power and so on, promote a certain, they invite a misreading. So, so there are some questions there that one would have to answer about the power of those translations. But there are other explanations really too about why it's so difficult because it leaves you in a situation in our country. You look at the number of black people in our country, look at the number of black and other brown minority ethnic people, whatever you want to call them, you add them, all of us up together, and then tell me that our political body can be instrumental in protecting ourselves and in moving the society to a better place. It's not going to happen. We have to seek alliances. We have to make spontaneous connections with people. There was a long time, you pointed earlier on in our conversation, back to the moment where black was considered to be a political colour. We have a history of leftism, which is very specific, which has dropped out because it's so little known and understood. There were trades union stories, there were local trades councils in numerous parts of, of of our country. You know, there's a story to be told about the Labour Party itself, which is a more interesting one. And similarly, in the United States, one has to say that African-Americans on standing on their own in their sublime objection are not going to be able to, sorry, maybe this is not for me to say, actually, but you asked me, so I'm going to say it. They're not going to be able to protect themselves adequately, never mind defend themselves politically. Forging alliances is an existential as well as a political necessity. Yeah. Right, exactly. Thank you. And, you know, I have friends who live in Alabama. I've been in the South. I know uh, you look at these questions of ontology and belonging and singularity and all of this stuff looks very different from different parts of the country than it does when the motif of who can catch a cab on the corner of New York City becomes the kind of ground zero of racial vulnerability and racial violence. You know, catching a cab, well, you know, we can, well, until recently, we could actually catch a subway and not worry too much about what the cab drivers thought. Barbara Fields, in a recent piece in Descent, questioned the now ubiquitous use of the concept of white privilege to mean not subject to a, a racist double standard. She, she writes, this is not a privilege. It's a right that belongs to every human being. Of course, Du Bois famously described the wages of whiteness. And, and the wages of whiteness uh, still exist, but, but for many people, they've become quite meager. So I'm wondering, do you think that it makes sense today, politically, to speak of white privilege. How useful is that term? I don't, I'm with Barbara on this. I know that David Rodiger, who's another descendant of Du Bois, has tried to argue, I think, very positively for a different, slightly different vocabulary for pinning down these mechanisms. Um, he, he speaks of white advantage, for example, which I think is a perhaps a more refined way of beginning to think about the dynamics of this. Privilege sounds so fixed, so final, you know, it's not subject to... Uh, to any kind of historical limit somehow. Yeah, so I don't, I'm not drawn to the vocabulary of of white privilege. I'm not drawn to the 
vocabulary of white fragility either. You know, one does understand a little bit about, about what that's getting at, but I don't think yet, I think there's some more conceptual work required. So, so absolutely, we need, a, we need a better vocabulary. And of course, Barbara Fields and, and a number of other people have also taken that risk. They're also people who I think remain faithful to a certain politics of intellectual work, which is uh, associated with different sets of interests generationally and in disciplinary terms within the, in the politics of higher education in the US and in elsewhere, actually. So 100% with Barbara feels on that. And I think I, I feel more comfortable in returning to these questions than I did 20 years ago when I wrote that book, because really all it did was unleash a whole torrent of violence and abuse towards me from African-Americans. And that, of course, begun with Black Atlantic when you get, I won't name people, but you'd get African-American, quite distinguished African-American academics coming to Britain to give lecture tours. And they would say, who is this Gilroy? He must be stopped from teaching your children, you know, seriously. So, you know, when, when, when it would be foolish to say that the argument, my encounter with those arguments about the limits of of, of, of racialized forms of, of political action wasn't in some ways conditioned by my reluctant exposure to the idea that, that black nationalism could be as toxic as any other form of nationalism. It's not always, but it can be. From the time that you published your first book in 1987, uh, There Ain't No Black in the Union Jack, you've written about race, nation, belonging. Um, in the aftermath of the civil rights and anti-racist movements in the U.S. and the U.K., politicians on the right were in some ways obliged to practice what you and Stuart Hall called an inferential racism, racial politics with a, a nod and a wink. But thanks to Donald Trump and other racist authoritarian leaders, Viktor Orban, Bolsonaro, racism is as brazen and crude as ever. Um, it's been you know, uncorked almost like a bottle of champagne, drunk with pleasure by its uh, supporters as if they've been released from an, in, from an inhibition, from the muzzle of political correctness, they would call it. Now, much of your recent work has addressed this recrudescence of, of brazen racism. And, and, and it seems in your analysis co- tied in complicated ways to economic crisis, to the collapse of the, of, of the socialist left, and to a, a wider assault on truth and public trust. How do you think we should understand this wave of anti-Black but also anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim racism do you, do you see this as the last gasp of a, of a white majority that is becoming a white minority, or do you think it's something that might have staying power? I don't know. Uh, I, it depends on which day you catch me. I think there are certainly some days when I think it's the last gasp historically, because I think that the nature of the crisis, in the same way that we talked, we began our conversation by discussing the way in which the pandemic has engulfed and transformed institutions and move things very, very quickly in some directions. Whether that mobilization is in fact sustainable, I don't know. But it's there is a huge mobilization. Can it become a movement? We don't know. That's being settled around us now. So I, I think it could be the last gasp because I think the nature of the climate emergency is accelerating towards us so fast that all sorts of new possibilities, alliances and connections across national boundaries, across regional areas, across the globe, really, will, will, will inevitably emerge from that. But yes, there's a, there's a, there's a, there is a lot 
there's a lot of distance to go uh, before we can we can turn around and, pl- and place that in the cold storage of history and say that we're past it. Say that we're th- we're 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 through it. You said earlier on that that whiteness wasn't worth what it used to be worth. I think. A lot really depends on on how we calculate that value or how that value asserts itself in people's consciousness over the immediate uh, period in front of us. So we don't really, we know it's not worth what it was, but we don't really know quite yet what it is still worth. And their creed occurs, you know, from Paris to, you know, um, uh, North Carolina is you will not replace. You will not replace us. Yeah. So we'll see. You know, on the last page of The Black Atlantic, you uh, envisioned a politics of a new century in which the central axis of conflict will no longer be the color line, but the challenge of just, sustainable development and the frontiers which will separate the overdeveloped parts of the world at home and abroad from the intractable poverty that already surrounds them. In these circumstances, it may be easier to appreciate the utility of a response to racism that doesn't reify the concept of race. Um, how far are we from this conception of politics? Um, are we arriving at it? Is it too early? How do you see this in relation to the anti-racist protests that have emerged in the last several months? I mean, because we've seen in some ways uh, at the same, at one and the same time, a very powerful critique of institutional racism and at the same time a slide back into certain essentialist thinking. Well, we see the we see the slippage because because it's it's e- it's easier and it's why the question really for me now is what comfort do the the fading certainties of a racial identity afford you in the context of well we could start with a pandemic right we could start with that you, you know what are other other certainties as as resonant, as solid, do they offer the kind of ballast in terms of your psychic disposition that they might have done uh, in other circumstances? Your anxieties, your fears, do they mediate them in some way? I don't know. And when the water is, you know, lapping up the road, I, I don't know that people are going to be fretting so much about about um, about their whiteness. Maybe they will, maybe they will, you know. Um, Maybe they will. Maybe the appeal of a racial war has its own, you know, psychic um, uh, uh, magnetism for some for some folk. But I, I would like to think that there are in the in the teeth of the emergency that awaits us, there will be other options there which are more future oriented, which allow us to live life relative to a future that we can't quite anatomized from this distance. So that's my hope. And I, I guess I do believe as a scholar, as a writer, as a voice, you know, that that there are certain obligations that fall on people like myself. And one of them is to offer shards of hope even in the in the in the in the teeth of um of things that seem intractable. So I would just throw that out there as a uh, as a as an image of it. Wright wrote very powerfully about the about the period of 20th century life that had formed him as an interlude. I used it as the one of the epigraphs from for Ain't No Black in the Union Jack. One of the epigraphs is drawn from Wright. Where he's reflecting on the, this sentimental interlude that 
that, that created his political imagination. I guess I'd want to stretch that time a little bit and say my political imagination has been created in this sentimental interlude and, and, I, and I want to use that fortuitous outcome as a way of finding images that can endow contemporary anxieties with a measure of hope. Paul, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and to think with you. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on the LRB podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.